when Jesus appeared to his disciples in Galilee, but after his resurrection from the dead, he said this to them, words we all know from Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The work of the church has not changed from this divine commission uttered almost 2,000 years ago. Disciples today are followers of Jesus because disciples of yesterday proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sin found solely through faith in Jesus Christ. And what's more, disciples today, like the disciples of yesterday, are brought under the great commission to proclaim to the world the good news of the forgiveness of sin found solely through faith in Jesus Christ. We see in the great commission from Jesus that a disciple is one who has trusted in Christ for salvation. We also see that a disciple is one who is obedient to Christ for service. But it's not merely this verse in which the nature of discipleship is explained by Jesus. We see it expressed clearly as he gathers disciples to himself at the outset of his public ministry in Galilee several years earlier. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God was at hand. That is, the saving rule of God had arrived through himself, for Jesus is the Christ, the messianic king through whom God's promises of old would be fulfilled. And what was the means of entering the kingdom and knowing salvation from sin? Jesus made that perfectly clear. Repent and believe. Repent of sin and believe in the good news of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. For he alone, through his life, death and resurrection, would enable sinners to be forgiven and declared righteous before holy God. To enter the kingdom then meant submitting to the king. Well now, as we continue in our study of Mark's gospel we will see that salvation leads to service. What he made clear to the disciples in Matthew 28, he made clear to his disciples right back at the beginning. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, 
He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The title of today's message is The Subjects of the Kingdom. For we will see that those who belong to the kingdom will firstly be followers of Jesus, but secondly, they will be fishers of men. See, when a person is graciously brought into the kingdom, they come to take on the priorities of the king. So, firstly, the subjects of the kingdom will be followers of Jesus. When we see in this, sorry, what we see in this passage is an example of the proper response to Jesus' preaching, of the proper response to hearing the gospel of God. Mark 1, verses 14 to 15, Jesus proclaimed clearly. He called people to respond in repentance and faith. And now we see these men followed. And it's not a blind faith either. They were responding to truth. While some might look at the response of the disciples as simply acting on a whim, leaving all they had at the word of someone they'd never met before, we need to recognise this just isn't the case. Mark has given us adequate context here to show that the faith of these men was not blind and that their actions were not irrational. They had heard the preaching of Jesus such that when he directed a call to them, they knew what they were responding to. I mentioned last week uh, that the 16th century reformers outlined three specific elements of saving faith. They said saving faith included knowledge, it included assent, and thirdly, it included trust. Saving faith involves our minds having knowledge of the gospel. Saving faith involves our emotions giving assent or approval to the gospel, having assurance of its truth. And saving faith involves our will expressing trust in the gospel. And we can see that clearly here in these verses. Truth has been heard by these men and it has led to an active response of commitment. Now, if all we had was Mark's account, it would be enough. But by God's grace and his wisdom, he has revealed more to us by giving us another three independent accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Another three independent accounts of how Jesus grew and matured his disciples. Another three independent accounts of the king's work to bring subjects into the kingdom. See, when Jesus spoke to these men by the Sea of Galilee, it was not the first time that he had met them. The Apostle John supplements these details for us in his gospel account. So if you please turn with me over to John chapter 1. And we're going to have a look briefly through 
uh, the first four chapters of John's Gospel. So John chapter 1 and verse 35. In this section here we see what happened when Jesus returned from his temptation in the wilderness in, uh, and his temptation when he returned to the area where John the Baptist was ministering. So verses 35 to 37, we read this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, one of John the Baptist's disciples who followed Jesus was Andrew. And then Andrew went and brought his brother Simon to see Jesus. So let's just read through verse 38 to 42 here. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's here that we see a transition take place. Andrew, and most probably his brother Simon, had been followers, disciples of John the Baptist. They'd heard John's preaching, and they responded in repentance and followed him. But now that the one that John the Baptist had been readying people for had arrived, now that the one who would baptise with the Holy Spirit had arrived, John directed his followers to Jesus. Follow Jesus. And that is what they did. Well, as we continue down through this passage, verses 43 to 51, Philip and Nathaniel are also called to follow Jesus. Nathaniel makes this incredible declaration in verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And from here, Jesus heads north with his disciples. In chapter 2, uh, we see Jesus attending a wedding in Cana, which is in the region of Galilee. And uh, that's where he uh, miraculously turns the water into wine. Then after this, he heads, verse 13, back down to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, where he cleanses the temple for the first time. And then he speaks with Nicodemus at the beginning of chapter 3 there about the new birth. Chapter 3, verse 22. This is just a brief overview so you can see the flow here. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Jesus moves into the country of Judea after he's been in Jerusalem. And he's ministering for a time in the same area uh, and at the same time as John the Baptist. They're carrying on joint ministries there. Then as we head to the beginning of chapter 4, we see that conflict arises for Jesus uh, with the Pharisees and then also with John the Baptist's disciples. 
And so he leaves for Galilee and he leaves straight up through Samaria. And uh, the majority of chapter 4 there is we see Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well in Samaria. And uh, that leads to uh, a large number of people from Samaria uh, coming to trust in Christ. And then at the end of that chapter in verse 43 we read, After the two days, that is in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. So this actually fills in the gaps, as it were, in Mark's Gospel between what happened after Jesus' temptation and the beginning of his public ministry. God has blessed us with four Gospel accounts, each with a different focus, each supplementing the whole picture for us, none of it at all being contradictory. As we can see then, Jesus had been ministering prior to proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, beginning of Mark chapter 1. But it's from this point that his ministry really gets going. Indeed, we can see that in him beginning to purposefully gather a distinctive group of disciples around him. What it also shows us is that the disciples' faith and commitment to Christ is not a flimsy, spur-of-the-moment decision. We certainly don't get that impression when reading Mark's account. And this is only confirmed for us as we look to the wider testimony of Scripture. Real faith will always exhibit itself in trusting Christ, committing to Christ, obeying Christ. But it stems from a clear knowledge and assurance of who Christ is. A knowledge of Jesus is fundamental to saving faith. Because unlike the other teachers, unlike the other rabbis of his day who instructed their disciples to follow the law and their traditions, Jesus commanded these four men on the Galilean shoreline to follow him. Mark opened his gospel account with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus Christ. Christianity is not at its core a submission to certain doctrines, but submission to a person, the God-man, the King, Jesus Christ. Subjects of God's kingdom become so by submitting themselves to the king. It is acknowledging the fact that Jesus is Lord. Not us. We're not Lord. Nor is any other. Only Jesus. Now this command to follow him does not come without a cost. It involves forsaking all for Christ. Simon Peter, Andrew, James and John left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Now, it's not a prerequisite for every follower of Jesus to leave their job. But following Jesus certainly means a dramatic mental change in which your allegiance is transferred entirely to the King and His purposes. An allegiance that would willingly leave behind 
all that we have for the glory of Christ, which includes our jobs, which includes our family, which includes our friends, our reputations, which includes even our very own lives. Listen to these words of Jesus recorded in Mark chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The command to follow Jesus is not fulfilled by mere lip service or casual acknowledgement, a tip of the hat. No, Jesus calls us to submit to his lordship, to his leading, to his authority. For only in laying down our life will we actually find it. In the um, Western world of the last 200 years or so, it's actually been of benefit to one's credentials to be associated with the church whether or not you even know Jesus personally, that being aside, it it has been beneficial to be associated with the church. But as Western society becomes more and more secularised and moral revolutions consider the Bible's teachings outdated or offensive, it will become less and less beneficial to associate with the church if we haven't reached that point already. When the pressure comes, there will be no place to hide. And those who've been nominally holding on will be forced to choose. Will you take up your cross, denying yourself and follow Jesus? Or will you abandon Jesus for the sake of your life and your reputation? If that is you, then I pray that you hear and heed Jesus' warnings. True life is found in Christ alone. For even if our life should be taken away, the sovereignty of God ensures that Christ's promises will prevail. See, outside of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no reconciliation with God. Outside of Christ, the person remains an enemy of God and remains under his righteous wrath and judgment. And so will you fear the world more than you fear God? That is the question. So, the subjects of the kingdom will be, firstly, followers of Jesus. Now, secondly, the subjects of the kingdom will be fishers of men. To be a subject of God's kingdom begins with following Jesus. But this must in turn lead to following Jesus' priorities. In Luke 19.10, Jesus declared of himself that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This 
was Jesus' mission. And the heart of the Father is to see sinners saved. This is revealed in a few chapters earlier in Luke 15 with a series of parables highlighting the joy of bringing salvation through the lost sheep being found, through the lost coin being discovered, through the lost son being welcomed home. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that God our Saviour desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This isn't teaching universalism. It's showing us the heart of God. The heart of the Father and of the Son is to be reflected then and exhibited in his people, in the followers of Jesus. If we haven't got a concern for lost souls then can we say we have truly understood God and the gospel? If we aren't interested in Jesus' mission, then can we say we are really submitting to Jesus? If the king's priorities don't become our priorities, then can we say we are really his subjects? Now at this point, let me remind you that we are not justified by our works. This is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, true faith will always evidence itself with good works. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, from verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus readying his followers for good works. Now, Jesus, he is the master teacher. All through his earthly ministry, he would use everyday aspects of life to convey incredible truths and here here we find no exception verse 16 passing alongside the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew the brother of simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and jesus said to them follow me and i will make you become fishers of men and immediately they left their nets and followed him Now, the connection cannot be missed, can it? These fishers of fish would have become fishers of men. Jesus was calling them to the work of proclaiming the gospel such that men and women would repent and believe that they too would heed the command to follow Jesus. Now, there were three ways of fishing in Jesus' day, but... All would make the same point for whether uh, you fished with a a line attached to a stick or whether you uh, fished with a small net from uh, cast from the shore uh, like Simon and Andrew are doing or whether you fished with a drag net between two boats like the net uh, that James and John were mending. Whether the whatever the approach, the connection is clear. Jesus 
was calling these men to be fishers of men, to be evangelists, gospelers. And there's really nothing passive about this work. Evangelism is an active pursuit, as the analogy makes clear. One question stands out, though, and that is, if Jesus had already called them to follow him prior to this moment that we saw in John chapter 1, then why on earth have they gone back to fishing? Well, there's two reasons for this. And the first we see is a cultural reason for fishing. In first century Palestine, a person could be a disciple of a certain teacher, but still have an occupation. It's clear from John chapter 1 that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, but he was at the same time working as a fisherman. And so when Andrew started following Jesus, that didn't automatically mean giving up his day job. When Mark records Jesus calling of Andrew and the others, it is an intensified call to discipleship. Jesus is calling them to a new focus. He will make them become fishers of men. It's not just about following Jesus, but about fishing, bringing others in to follow Jesus. Now, for Mark, he doesn't feel led by the Spirit to record anything further about the disciples' calling. But notice the tense of the language that Jesus uses here. I will make you become fishers of men. It's a future tense. Why is that important? Well, when we look to Luke's account of the gospel, we actually see a third and final call for these men. If you look with me to Luke chapter 5, you'll see a very familiar story where Jesus uh, is uh, preaching to the crowd. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, standing by the sea of or the lake of Gennesaret, the same terminology for the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus hops onto these two fishing boats and pushes out just a little from the shore so he can continue preaching. But then after this, they head out into deep water at Jesus' uh, command and there is this miraculous catch of fish. And then Jesus says to the amazed disciples in verse 10, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, what's the tense of the language here? It's present. From now on. Luke 5 is actually a different account to what is recorded in Mark. It is something that happens a little later on. Luke records the moment the disciples are called into full-time ministry where they leave their jobs and commit to Christ's work. Mark, and uh, in the Gospel of Matthew as well, these writers don't feel the need to elaborate on these details, knowing that's clearly what eventuated. So when we understand the culture of the day, it makes sense why the disciples were still fishing. But I said there was a second reason. And that is a compassionate reason for fishing. See, in the multiple calls of the disciples by Jesus, we can see the compassionate work of God to grow his people into maturity and faithfulness. 
Even after Jesus' resurrection, uh, John records an encounter that Jesus had with his disciples when they'd gone back to fishing in Galilee. And Jesus reiterates the necessity of commitment to him when he says to Peter, Do you love me more than these? And when Jesus says this, he's sitting by a campfire cooking some fish. He's pointing to the fish saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, I'm sure they were nice tasting fish. But what he's referring to is the whole lifestyle, his whole livelihood. Are you willing, Peter, to give up everything and follow me? Now, I'm sure we all have to admit, looking at the lives of the disciples and wondering why it took them so long to get it. But the reality is, we are just like them. But what we also need to understand, wonderfully, is that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. We can know that the grace God exhibited to the disciples is the same gracious way that he deals with his people today. By God's providence as well, the many encounters Jesus had with the disciples while they were still fishing were able to be used as illustrations for them and for us as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because to be a follower of Jesus involves fishing for men. The blessing that disciples receive in being called to follow Jesus is meant to be expressed outwardly by participating in the proclamation of the gospel to others. See, just like a, a pond that only receives water in but has no outflow will become stagnant, the water's becoming putrid. So our lives as disciples will be hindered if we're not helping others to know Christ and the forgiveness of sin that only he can bring. I came across a modern day parable that I think perfectly illustrates this point. And we'll read through this as we lead to a close this morning. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur. There was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there is only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, and so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new life-saving crews were trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was no crude and poorly equipped they felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. And so they replaced the emergency cots and the beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions and so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. 
The life-saving motive still prevailed in the club's decorations and there was a, a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. Some of them had black skin, some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up. And so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And as we've seen this morning, the subjects of the kingdom will be followers of Jesus and fishers of men. This is a natural progression, or better yet, a supernatural progression. For the subjects of the kingdom will take on the priorities of the king. What greater priority is there than the salvation of sins? Abiding in Christ leads to advocating Christ. Receiving Christ leads to revealing Christ. Possessing Christ leads to proclaiming Christ. As those of us who were formerly lost, may God grant us his burden for those currently lost. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have revealed your purposes for us as your people in your word as well. Father, we thank you for what you have revealed to us this morning of what it means to be a member of your kingdom, what it means to come under your saving rule and your grace. Father, we, we thank you firstly that it means following Jesus. We thank you that this is by your grace alone that you reveal yourself to us, regenerating our hearts that we may respond in repentance and faith. Father, what, what blessing it is that we are saved by your grace. But Father, we recognise that we are saved into your kingdom and that we are to then emulate your kingdom purposes. You were not done when you saved us. There are many more of your people yet to be saved. And you work through your people to do that. So Father... Create in us a burden for lost souls. 
create in us a heart uh, which just desires that people who are currently under your wrath would come to know reconciliation through the good news of faith in Jesus Christ. May we do that as a church, collectively, as individuals. May you help us to see your purposes. May we reflect your priorities as our King. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen.